So tonight, uh, I thought I'd offer some reflections inspired by one of my teachers who's very wonderful at coming up with kind of pithy sayings, quotable quotable summaries of um, Dharma teachings, his way of putting Dharma teachings that I find I have found from my own practice to be easy to remember and inspiring. Uh, his name is Saida Utejaniya. He's a Burmese monk who kind of came into the Vipassana, Western Vipassana scene um, some years ago, to maybe 10 years ago, via my, another teacher of mine, Steve Armstrong. And he sort of took us all by storm, introducing in a different sort of uh, slightly different practice method than we were used to. We come from the Saira Pandita Mahasi Saira lineage of Burmese Buddhism and the way that we practice. And this was a different lineage that uh, actually Saira Upandita's teacher, Shweyu Min Sayada, he was he also studied with Mahasi Saira. He just started his own monastery, so it was Upandita and Shweyu Min Saira doing two different forms of practice. And this is how it is with the Dharma and Dharma practice: is that as you uh, practice as you learn, you sort of find the way that works for you. And if you become a teacher, then you want to teach the way that worked for you. (laughs) And so uh, that's where all of this emphasis on attitude, the attitude, what's happening in the mind that's meditating, that's where Dave and I, one of the places where we get it from, this was one of the big um, changes that Saida Utejaniya brought to our lineage and it really changed my practice as well as other teachings of his which which I'll share with you now to make it more shall we say efficient more fun and more efficient in terms of doing what it's supposed to do which is create the conditions for insights that uproot the patterns of suffering in the mind and so for me, this, these, this form of practice, which is very relaxed in the mind, um, and it's, he, he, he really emphasizes not trying too hard, not pushing, finding this relaxed continuity of mindfulness, letting it develop on its own, and uh, really works for me anyway. For all of us type A's who over, overexert, it's really great. So I'm going to offer some of mine. It's really great. It's like, just bad. let's just back off and let natural awareness accumulate on its own. What a concept, right? <laughs> so these are some of my uh, favorite Saira Utejaniya teachings that I will expand upon. Saira says... <coughs> You can either believe in it, no matter what it is, no matter what it is that's happening to you or with you in this moment right now, whether in your life or at a meditation retreat. You have two choices. You can either believe in it 
or you can practice with it. You can either believe in it or practice with it. So believing in it, we've been talking about this. Uh, This is the clinging. This is the being lost in. This is the taking everything as me, that's happening as me, mine, my problem, my fault. Uh, Believing in the storylines and the narratives and the movies unfolding in our minds. Uh, Getting swept up in and caught up in emotions without realizing that we're feeling an emotion even. Acting out of them unconsciously. Being taken over by compulsion. Being swept up in the stream of experience being hypnotized, as Dave put it, enchanted by experience. All these different forms of what the Buddha called upadana clinging. Sayadaw says it's believing in it. We're believing in the contents of our minds in general instead of practicing with it or believing in sense experience too, like getting lost in sights and sounds without really knowing we're hearing or seeing getting lost in our preference or likes or dislikes for sense experience. He says that's the dukkha that leads to more dukkha. That's believing in it. Suffering that leads to more suffering. Or practice with it. Easy to remember. We get one or the other. What does it mean to practice with it? It. Experience this moment whatever's happening right now. Yeah, this speaks to that central teaching of clinging and non-clinging. It also speaks to, no matter what it is, you can practice with it. It's available to you to do that all-important mindful shift of just recognizing what's happening when it's happening. That, as I was saying, whenever it was, (laughs) is an actual, that's an act of letting go of clinging. A practice in letting go of clinging. The R of rain, recognize. So practicing with it means practicing rain. Recognize the experience, allow the experience, investigate the experience. Don't identify with it. And that's one aspect of what it means to practice with. Anything. Mindfulness can take anything in any aspect of your experience as an object. Another pithy, quotable teacher, the Buddha, <laughs> he um, had a lot of little brief nuggets and snippets of wisdom too. And one that you've probably heard of is he said, I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. That's really two things, isn't it? But <laughs> one thing, suffering and the end of it. And also the the quote I already mentioned, I think, this morning was, one who knows clinging and freedom from clinging understands the whole of the Dharma. Those are the same things. That's the same thing as saying you can either believe in it or practice with it. The practicing with it is the freedom from clinging to some degree or other. You know, there's a, there might be a certain amount of, we sort of flip back and forth between being aware of and slipping back into it, being aware of and slipping back into it. So to practice with means rain. It means what I call joining team awareness. We're going to leave behind team dukkha 
<laughs> or team, <laughs> team loss of awareness or team, that other team. We don't want to be on that team. We want to be on team awareness. <clears throat> Practice with it means to see clearly to practice seeing clearly with our wise, mindful awareness, with correct attitude. See clearly so that we are able to respond wisely. And seeing clearly in order to understand, understand what an emotion is, understand what these experiences are, understand the nature of things and this understanding, as I said about a dozen times already, frees us. Frees us from the clinging, the suffering. Frees us from thinking that it makes sense to grasp, hold on to this changing river of experience, which is ungraspable. It's like holding water, is, is the famous saying. You know, for example, the, the eye tension story that I told this morning. Uh, for a long time, many years, I was just believing in the eye tension. Lost in it. Uh, unaware of what was happening there, just hating it, basically, and going, this is sucks, but it's just my life. And, and not understanding that I could practice with it, turn toward it, and investigate tension in my eyes, tension in my body as an <coughs> object. It wasn't until I started studying with Utejaniya that I understood that I could <coughs> take anything as an object. What's, what's presenting itself right now? What's prese- what was presenting itself right now was this eye tension is bugging me and, I don't, and it's interfering with my practice. Oh, maybe I could practice with it. Okay, well, let me look at it. And then as I described this morning, this whole cascading uh, series of ahas and little and big insights ensued. The insights are onward leading always. What we learn in this moment will then inform other things because that insight of seeing the eye tension and the keeping, keeping the, that seeing that sort of fundamental pattern of my mind of this need to, to keep the world at bay or brace myself against the world, that insight and knowing that my mind has that deep inside and that there's just a whole lot of other behaviors I was doing I saw as being connected to that fear. And that meant I could look at them in a different way and sort of see, see them as like, you know, workable. Like I actually don't have to go hide out alone all the time necessarily <laughs> because the world is unsafe. You know, that's just part of this pattern that's connected to this I thing. You know, it's like suddenly your whole mind-body becomes this, the, like I think you said landscape or territory of discovery and healing leading to freedom, you know. So my relationships changed the way that I interacted with the world changed and uh, practicing with those um, in those situations and with the emotions and so on that would come up in those situations were onward leading and I was willing to practice rather than with rather than believe the emotions or feelings the discomfort that came up in those situations and and it's helped me to take to trust more to trust more to let go of the let this incessant guard down, sort of. (laughs) Really, you know, somewhat. 
Whatever's arising, we can investigate the nature of this puppy. We can see what it's made of. We can see its nature. Its nature will reveal itself. And, you know, this curiosity, with the eye tension, it's like, well, I might as well practice with this. Sometimes we get to that. It's like, okay, this thing keeps coming back. Well, I guess I'll practice with it because I can't seem to get rid of it any other way that we try all these other strategies, you know. Um, and But sometimes it's quite difficult to turn toward and face some of these, these very... Um, Difficult to hold, difficult to look at, and see uh, patterns of, of suffering or emotions. And so we practice with it skillfully in some of the ways that Dave and I have been sharing. You know, we practice titration. We don't stare at something really difficult. We glance at it. We glance at it. Um, it but underneath has to be the sort of wholesome desire to understand it. This, even if we can't quite, um, you know, see it in its entirety yet or it's too overwhelming or activating or whatever, uh, we, we, we need to have this willingness or at, at least to experiment with practicing with it, whatever it is. Um, and then we can start to, to work with it, you know. We keep glancing at the, um, the anxiety or the fear or the sadness, <clears throat> building confidence each time we look and we see a little bit more about it, that we can be with this without it taking us over, you know, destroying us or whatever it is we fear. And and it de- you know some of these patterns can be quite overwhelming. So and I'm going to tell a story that many of you might have heard before about one of these patterns with, with that I've worked with, but I just want to mention that an example, just a quick example is like when I started to practice with sadness, you know, at retreat, we get we get emotional. It's part of the deal. The doors to the heart are opening, and we get flooded with emotion. And um, so, I've had plenty of opportunity over the years to look at sadness and and uh, you, you know the emotional upwelling. And so, being willing to practice with it, sadness wasn't a particularly loaded emotion for me. I didn't mind looking at it. It sort of felt good to me, kind of, to feel sadness. Uh, but, you know, it, to, I, to be able to just, I, I had to kind of get curious about it. I had to be willing to practice with it. And let me just feel this. Let me just watch sadness in my body. And as I started to do that, feeling the waves of the emotion, noticing over the years, by the way, that all emotions come in waves, like everything in the world happens in waves, it's so beautiful to see that. Like um, all emotions are come in waves, and as the ocean, it makes me feel so connected with all the other waves. <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, uh, the sadness. All of a sudden, I notice. Okay, there's a lot of water coming out here, and it's not just coming out my eyes. It's like my mouth is watering. Have you ever noticed that when you cry, your mouth waters too? 
like your whole face is watering. And I didn't ever notice that before. I didn't ever notice that before. And it sounds kind of silly, but I was like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. Wow, my mouth is watering, and it felt somehow less sad. Like It was like, oh, that's, that's kind of neat. I got more interested in the process of this emotion than in the sad story that I'd been thinking about and attaching to those, you know, and... Uh, so things, little things like that can come along when we're willing to practice with and we become fascinated with the, the process of our being. And these things that we do, they're so fascinating. Eating, weird, right? Have you gotten that, like, that moment where you're like, this is so weird, my jaw, my chewing, and the tongue comes in whenever it wants to, like, shove stuff back there. And, and then it's going down, and you can kind of feel it going down. It's like, what? <laughs> Who designed this? You know, there's just that moment of like absurdity. Suddenly, like, just you're not worried about eating the wrong food. You're like, whoa, eating is happening. This is weird. So it can be fascinating. It can be fun, and it, it can and and practicing with uh, these experiences can really dispel their hypnotizing power that really dispel their ability to take us over. That's why we practice with them. So the story that I want to tell about a a pattern that was very difficult for me to work with and took me some years to really uh, penetrate with my practice and release was a pattern of anxiety. Apologies to those who have heard this story before, like Dave, about 20 Mm -hmm. times. Uh, because I came to meditation practice because I was having panic attacks and uh, I went to the emergency room once with one of these panic attacks thinking I was dying and this was like 20 some years ago now and bless his heart the emergency room doctor the first thing he asked me was are you having trouble in your personal life? (laughs) like your heart? he said yeah he said, Are you, did you just have a breakup or having a problem in your relationship, your love relationship? I said, yeah, how'd you know that? It's like the doctor, the medical doctor knew that my heart palpitations might have something to do with like love trauma. And um, amazing, right? And then he handed me this sheet of paper that had been like mimeographed. Remember mimeographed? So many times, it, you could barely read it. Like, it was all scratchy, and, you know, you had to squint to see. It was a list of, 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 of things to do to, to reduce stress. And in the top ten, the first couple were like, quit drinking and smoking. I'm like, no, <laughs> that ain't going to happen at the time. <laughs> okay. What else? What else? <laughs> and then <laughs> there was right in the top ten there was... Um, Yoga and meditation. This was L.A., so <laughs> 20 years ago, they already had that on their mimeograph sheet. And so I was like, yoga and meditation, okay. All right, well, I'll try this yoga thing, but meditation, no way. But you know, what's interesting is that yoga is a body, body practice, body mindfulness practice. And as soon as I started doing yoga, I never had another panic attack. I didn't know why at the time. But honestly, looking back, I've never had one. I've had lots of anxiety and lots of fear. But after I started practicing mindfulness of body in that 
way, and I had a really good teacher that was a very spiritual-minded Dharma teacher, it just, um, the escalation that was fear, anxiety, up to panic, stopped. That was unplugged somehow, and I didn't know why until much later in my practice. So then comes the long, grinding work over years of sitting, practice, and retreats, of watching fear come up, pushing it away, I can't see that, or, um, you know, seeing the avoidance, not being able to, not knowing what to do with it, um, getting freaked out by it, doing all of my avoidance strategies, continuing to drink alcohol, you know, watching television, whatever. I, I just, um, I would, but I would go on retreat, and I would... I would just start to glance at it. The teacher said, you would say, you know, practice with the emotion, whatever's coming up, and I'd try to, to look at it. And it, interestingly, things like being able to look at the less loaded emotions, like sadness, really prepped, prepped me for being able to look at the anxiety, the fear. And my anxiety was really tied to my body. Um, I, because I was an alcohol and drug abuser, you know, I had heart palpitations. I had difficulty with my circulation and heart and um, so my heart would skip beats a lot and I every time it would skip beats I'd I'd get this rush of panic rush of fear because I I think I was dying or having a heart attack or something even when it happened so much that I knew I wasn't going to die but there was still this just yucky feeling in my chest and so I was um, I would just look at that you know I would look at that fear that would come up for what sometimes that was the trigger sometimes there'd be other things so the years go by i'm getting little pieces of the picture of this fear what fear is moment to moment and it wasn't until i got the saida utejaniya instructions about really practicing with whatever is arising and the way that he had us practice with things and the very natural and relaxed sort of awareness and the continuity that i was able to develop with that that I was able to see and develop the kind of concentration where I could see this cycle of fear and watch it and be steady with it all the way through. At some point, we build up the endurance of mindfulness where we're able to hold something really uncomfortable, like an uncom- a difficult emotion, and watch it pass, watch it go all the way through. So I was sitting at a, a pretty long retreat, and uh, the, my had a heart Missed, missed the beat, heart palpitation, felt fear, streak up from my belly, was really good concentration at that, good continuity. So just watch it. Oh, that's happening right now. Watch the fear come in a wave. Feel it through my body, out through the top of my head. Then there's a thought. Then very quickly, see, things slow down when you have concentration. You can start to see these cycles completely. And so uh, there was a thought that I saw the thought spin out of the body sensation. The thought was saying, oh, no, oh, no, what's happening with your heart? You know, uh, oh, no. But it kind of rushed right to, oh, no, what if you're having a heart attack? What if you're going to die? What if you die here in front of everyone? <laughs> it was really concerned with humiliation. What if you fall down and your underwear shows? And people have to come and help you. Oh my God, what if you need help? You know, that's like what I'm afraid of. 
And so, <laughs> and so I saw that my mind yelling these things, saw my systems believe in the thought, that is like get sucked into the thought, and then that drove another wave of fear. I saw it like cause, effect, cause, effect. And you know it's happening like this. This is why we meditate. So we can slow things down and see this, these connections. Because by seeing that whole cycle all the way through, it was suddenly clear, a couple things were clear. First of all, these thoughts were ridiculous. And there was no reason to believe in them. And second, it was the believing in that drove the next wave of panic. And it suddenly became clear in one of those, you know, aha insight moments, intuitive wisdom that sees everything all at once in a split second, and that's taking me 10 minutes to talk about, you know, that um, all I needed to do was let go of the stupid thoughts that weren't true anyway. And as soon as I did, as soon as I was like, oh, well, I'm not believing in that thought, gone fear. Fear gone. Completely gone. And in its place, the inrushing of the heart qualities of gratitude and, uh, and joy and amazement and appreciation for the practice and that wonderful feeling that there's nothing better for me of understanding, of understanding this pattern that had dogged me for, by that point, 20 years. And I knew that having seen that, you know, even though for many, many years after that, of course I still feel fear. Of course I feel fear. But I am not at its mercy. I don't fear it. I don't fear it, fear anymore. And I don't really believe, although you never know what the future may bring, but I don't really believe I could have a panic attack again because I know how to unplug the engine. It's this... Each time you believe in the thought associated with the emotion, it drives another wave and it's stronger the next time. It gets stronger and stronger. The more you believe in it, the worse it gets. That's why we practice with it. It just unplugs the engine of these afflictive emotions. And once I saw that, I, and I saw the similarity as I was observing my emotions over the years through my practice, I saw the similarity in them all. I recognized that it was the same for all of them. It was, they all run on the engine of our storylines. And all we need to do is step out of our storylines and they stop running. And they, and they pass in their own time. And this is emotional intelligence, deep emotional intelligence that this practice gave me. Okay, that was a long story. I hope it is helpful. So what we're seeing there, we're, we're, our practice is deconstructing experiences like this. It's showing us the component parts. We are, um, instead of me being sort of lost in this, oh no, the fear that I fear is happening, thing, experience, like being lost in my assumptions about it, um, that are basically driving, you know, the dukkha, the clinging part. Um, it's we're taking a look and we're letting all of its little component parts reveal itself. This is the revelation of the characteristic of the design of things of life. The Buddha pointed to, called anatta, not self or emptiness. 
is another word that's used to describe this. That is that everything, everywhere is both conditional and compounded. It's made of other things and it depends on other conditions and other things to, to exist. And there is not anything, any object, person, building, mountain, universe, you know, planet, anything in the whole universe, including our inner universe, any thought, experience, emotion, that is not anatta, compounded and conditional. And so when we look at ourselves inside, this reveals the component parts of this experience reveals itself, and it becomes demystified, and it becomes impersonal. It's like, oh, just fear, that thing that I know consists of these sensations in the body and these thoughts in the mind that I can choose to not believe in. And when I choose to not believe in them, it passes in its own time, which is really quite rapidly. I think emotions, there's been a study, emotions last like 15 seconds or so at the most, or nine seconds on average. I, I'm sorry, I wish I had the correct number. But it's not very long. And what makes them seem long is that we keep getting caught up in the storyline again and another wave comes. So we put them all together, you know, and it becomes like, I am a fearful person. I have panic attacks and I'm afflicted by this and this is me. And we define ourselves by it. So it's making us let go of all of our definitions, this practice. We're deconstructing and letting go of our definitions and we're coming to life fresh. You know, it just is so freeing. That's freeing. That is freeing. We're not walking around with this pile of bricks, our assumptions and um, views on our back. And Anicca, of course, you know, we're seeing impermanence, of course, in part, you know, seeing the, the emotion dissipate, seeing the end of it and the cause of its ending. That all comes together. And we start to be able to see patterns over time and really see the nature of these animals, let's call them. The spots on the leopard, the, the, you know, the horn on the rhino of fear, the spots on the leopard of um, jealousy. Jealousy, we start to see the types of thoughts. Emotions kick off. Fear thinks catastrophic thoughts, worst case scenarios. Jealousy thinks violent thoughts, at least my jealousy does. <laughs> not pretty, not pretty. God forbid I believe in those thoughts. Joy thinks generous thoughts, and so on. I mean, you know, we start to, to see their nature, and they become our friends and, our, and the dangerous ones, and the, you know, and the, but they're all workable. They're not really anything that we need to hold on to. It doesn't benefit us in any way to hold on to. We can just let them flow, part of us. Boy, okay, let's see. Yeah, and the practicing with it also means to me to the seeing clearly piece means that we are then free to respond wisely. So sometimes we need to, um, you know, 
as I think Dave said on the first night, we have agency. This is what's arising right now, and now in this moment we have a choice, if we see it clearly, about what to do, if anything, about it. Maybe what we want to do is just be with it and investigate it and let it reveal itself, like I described with the anxiety thing. Or maybe, you know, if it's too overwhelming, if it's too difficult, we need to do something else, some other skillful means like offer some metta phrases or compassion. Um, what, you know, what the Buddha actually recommended, thought replacement. That's what these Brahma-Vihara practices are. Instead of thinking about how awful we feel, we're going to say, may I be happy, may I be peaceful. Instead of um, uh, thinking about uh, um, how we really need our life, this, this and that, and our life to be complete, we intentionally think about what we're grateful for. And our whole mind state mood changes. It's very powerful. So we can, you know, learn those skills and and meet our experience moment by moment with this opportunity. Here's a beautiful quote from um, Kula Dasa. And he said, as our practice matures, we start to realize and feel, you know, and, and I guess um, wake up to the fact that our lives are a great adventure with so with many opportunities to act from the heart to uncover and act from the heart i love that you know that's the kind of thing a teacher 20 years ago i would have gone yeah right i would have i would have totally did you know it just didn't I, this is one of the things that i wanted to talk about tonight was how much this practice changes you that that statement of kula dasas i actually believe in now you know, and I'll get to that all that in a minute, how much change happens. So seeing clearly, responding wisely, that's part of practicing with it. To practice with it, this also means um, letting the richness of, like working with experiences like eating, like showering, like walking, that um, becoming aware of them in more detail, which is like, like what we're doing at this retreat. Practicing with eating, practicing with walking, practicing with going to the bathroom or, you know, whatever. It's like suddenly all of this richness emerges in the everyday, just the everyday banal stuff of our lives. And for me, when that happens, it's like, wow, the whole idea of needing entertainment or stimulation changes. The whole... um, the constant incessant seeking in the mind for the next hit of pleasure or stimulation is actually satisfied when I let the richness of the the detail of eating and imagining where the food comes from and my mind opening up and, and, and hearing as all the different sounds that are happening right now. Or like, oh, washing dishes, for example, used to be I can't wait till this is over. I can't wait till this is over. I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. Very unpleasant. <laughs> Somebody can relate to this. Chores. Yuck. Until it was suggested to me to stop believing in that unacknowledged semi-conscious uh, belief or thought or mood and instead just pay attention to it. Just pay attention to the details of doing the dishes. Then it's like, wow, look how many different motions are involved in doing the dishes. 
And oh gosh, that kind of smells nice, that soap and the warm water. Oh, that's pleasant, that's pleasant. And here I am, so sort of gracefully, one after another, and oh my gosh, feel that hit of satisfaction with the, with the clean dish. <laughs> Little subtle things like that suddenly become a source of joy. And I mean, I now don't procrastinate with chores anymore. If there's, that's a pretty big gift from the practice. I gotta say, my house is clean. It used to be piled up dishes and, yeah. So things like that, um, instead of taking life for granted, it becomes this full and rich and beautiful experience, full of sensory detail. And that is a great gift. That's what emerges when we practice with, when we practice with our lives, every moment of our lives available to that shift. Okay. Sayadaw says, don't try to be patient. Investigate impatience. So, this is pointing to a very beautiful teaching that helped me so much with my practice, which is every, everything you need to awaken is right here, right now. You don't need to generate any particular state. You don't need to try to get anything. You don't need to try for insight or try for peace or try for metta or try for compassion or try for any of these wonderful states that we tend to idealize. Just work with what's appearing right now. It's so simple. It just makes practice so simple. What's here? Now there's a gazillion things here right now. So we need to filter a little bit, like, and that might be guided by our topics of investigation or whatever frames of reference we're using. So if, if, you, if you've been given the instruction, try to be non-judgmental with your experience. Be friendly with your experience. Be friendly with your experience. Well, when I hear that instruction, when I heard it at the beginning, it was like, Okay, try to be friendly with my experience. Well, I hate my experience, and I hate myself for hating my experience, and I hate you for telling me to be friendly. So shut up. That's like some you know people telling you, smile, honey, guys who tell girls, you look so pretty when you smile. Why don't you smile? And I'm like, where's my gun? Where's, I'm going to get you. Don't even tell me what to do. Do not tell me what to do. You know, like that's what's happening in my mind when the teacher says, be friendly. Sylvia Borstein, meet your, meet your anger with friendliness. I'm like, yeah, right. And so, so this is what we practice with then. If they say, try to meet with non-judgment. And then, you know, 99% of people I work with say, well, I'm feeling judgment and I, and it's horrible, and I can't do it. And I say, no, no, just practice with the judgment then. Just practice with what's arising, because that's what's arising. And uh, that's what's here, and, and let's, let's practice with it. Don't believe in it. Don't feel bad about it. Just look at it. Just look at it. Here's what's here. It's your teacher right now, in this moment. It's your teacher. What's it got to sh- show you? And this simplifies things greatly, and it relaxes things greatly, and it releases us from the tyranny of expectation, the tyranny of expectation, the tangle, the tangled up. I want, you know, Dave has been talking about it a lot. I have that habit of the mind to want this future experience that we can imagine in great detail. 
But we can't. We gotta. We gotta not believe in that thought and just work with what's here. Everything we need is right here. In, in, interestingly, we find our way towards non-judgment or patience or metta or compassion by practicing with if whatever arises, even if it's the opposite. We find our way towards because we're just we're making the suggestion to ourselves, and then we're seeing what is. Um, kind of in the way, you know, what's preventing us from finding our heart which is waiting there. And all these qualities are in our hearts and in wisdom, the wisdom mind. That's there. It's just, we just, it's going to be discovered. We just need to keep practicing with the stuff that's in the way. I had a good lesson in this sitting a retreat once um, in... Um, uh, Pacific, it was at Cloud Mountain, very small meditation hall, smaller than this, where packed in with people knee to knee, really, you know, intimate, and you could hear everything and sort of smell everything, and you know, of your neighbors, and you know how this is can be somewhat distracting <laughs> at times, and. And so early, this is pretty early in my practice, and I, I had an expectation in the mind that I, that I needed it to be quiet, that we're supposed to be quiet, to respect everyone around us, and you know, and that's what I tried to do. I tried not to cough or move or snore or fart or nothing. You know, I'm just really tight. And um, <laughs> there were these people sitting next to, you know, pretty near me that were. Eating lozenges, <laughs> eating lozenges, the whole retreat, <laughs> like they were unwrapping crinkle, 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 the crinkling, like deafening in this really quiet room, crinkle, crinkle, crinkle forever. And I'd be sitting there going, "When's the day? Come on, get it out! Come on, you can do it." You can do it. Get that thing out of the wrapper, please. <laughs> and then there's pause. And then there's clack, clack, clack. <laughs> you can hear them with the lozenge in their teeth, in their mouth. It was so quiet. The clacking in there. And you can even hear the sucking, <laughs> the swallowing, the saliva. It was really gross. And I was just going, what? I mean, I couldn't do anything but listen to this sound <laughs> and get more and more pissed, more and more irritated, right? Anybody felt like that at all during this week? At all? Not at all, right? That sound, ah! And um, so, and then, but, you know, just being completely sucked into the experience. So the clacking, clacking, I'd listen to it almost till it was gone. Then as soon as it finally died away, then the person's, husband or wife, it was a couple, would start. <laughs> unwrap, unwrap. It's like they were a tag team. One would finish one lozenge, and then the other one would pick that moment to start theirs. So there was always somebody clacking or unwrapping or sucking. And it was like the lozenge couple, the lozenge team, I don't know. And, and I would sit down every sit and go, oh, the lozenge people. The lozenge people are starting. Finally, 
it occurred to me after a few, you know, sits, maybe days, who knows, I can't remember how long it lasted, this fury where I was just trying to yank my attention away from that into something else. I really, God, because I, I, it would be interspersed with hatred and rage and then feeling really bad about myself and my practice because I was feeling those things. And like, this is totally ruining my, my retreat, blah, 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 all of those emotions. So finally it occurred to me to practice with it, to practice with it. This was before I met Saida. I hadn't heard this teaching yet. It just occurred to me, it's like, okay, I need to just, what the hell is going on here? What is going on? Okay, it's anger, it's rage. I just owned it. I took responsibility. And this is another wonderful, pithy quote of Saida Utejaniyas. He says, the mind is not yours, but you're responsible for it. It's not yours in the sense that all the things that are happening in it, so many of those are out of your control and happening according to causes and conditions that many, you know, it's not really ours. Is it ours? I mean, who made us, really? Did we decide to make us? Did we decide to form our brain this way or whatever? Did we decide to create our conditioning that happened to us as children? No. All these things, a lot of our conditioning is, it's just not ours. But in this leading edge of our experience right now, it's our responsibility to work with it, to, to recognize it, to practice with it, to not act in harmful ways, and so on, to take responsibility. So I finally took responsibility for my feelings about the lozenges. <laughs> and, um, you know, the same process happened. Of like, I learned so much about, let's see, what did I, what did I learn? <laughs> I learned about my attachment to righteousness. Righteous anger. Don't they know they're supposed to be quiet? Don't they know how they're disturbing everyone right now? It's just me. I don't know, maybe other people, but so the and I also learned a lot about the self-judgment piece, you know, that like I'm not supposed to feel this. But the righteous anger thing. I learned about my attachment to righteousness that I really got was getting something out of holding on to that anger. And again, just like with the eye tension story, uh, my mental assumptions of right and wrong and, you know, how so much, it just suddenly became clear to me from the lozenges how um, much suffering I was experiencing in my life by holding on to these notions and this feeling of, of you should do it the way I want you to cause that, and the way we're supposed to. And then recognizing that how out of control I was of other people's behavior and, and how what a dead end, what a dead end back, backfiring strategy righteousness is. And that really, really helped me going forward in my relationships in life. You know, receiving people more openly, being so much less attached to my version of things, how I needed it to be, and all that good stuff. You know, it really helped free me. So thank you, Lozenge team, Lozenge couple. That was a great teaching. And that's the cool thing. No matter what it is, you can practice with it, and sometimes the more, the wor- the, like the harder the experience is, the more you learn. So that's why it's not useful to judge when a, a defilement or a dukkha is coming up. Saida Utejaniya 
he just wants us to see the defilements. That's all he wants. When we go and report to him, we could say, oh, I had this bliss, I had this, this, I had this moment of dissolution of self, and he's like, uh-huh, And then you say, and I, I really saw anger and the hurt underneath. He said, yes, see the defilements clearly. That will free you. That will free you. All right. Just a couple last ones that teachings of his that really kind of go together having to do with letting, trusting that if we practice skillfully, if we have continuity of mindfulness, the insights and the wisdom will emerge, will come on their own. They will happen on their own. We can't make them happen. He says, the more you try to see something, the less clearly you can see it. Only when you are relaxed can you see things as they are. Those who don't try to look for anything see more. That's interesting. I found that to be quite true, and it's really tricky to get there. You know, me with the eye tension, always looking, looking, looking. (laughs) I'm looking in my awareness. I'm looking for... Okay, I'm supposed to be looking for impermanence now. Okay, let me see. You know, like, it's just a really tense when we're looking for it. But if I just settle back, that's why I use the language, just, you know, be present, be aware as much as you can, and let the thing come to you. Let this experience come to you. Let it reveal itself. Reveal itself. It's a revelation process. It really is. Just like in the Bible. Revelation of truth. Right on. Saida says, when the mind is ready for insight, it will arise naturally, spontaneously. Don't look or hope for insight to arise. Looking for it will lead to false creations of the mind. False creations of the mind. Now, I know I'm going on and on here, but I just got to tell this story because <laughs> it's so good. Somebody else, somebody related this story to me about going to sit a retreat in India with a very well-known um, Tibetan lama who uh, didn't speak English, and there were a lot of Westerners there. And so when Westerners would report what they were seeing, uh, what they were experiencing, and then the the translator would translate to the Lama, then he'd say something to the translator, and the translator would say in English. So one of the yogis sitting that retreat told a long and involved story about what he was seeing in his meditation, his visions of... um, Tankas, you know, with all of the different Tibetan deities, and in their, in, you know, they're dancing and they're doing this and that. And he went into great detail for many minutes about what he was seeing in his meditation, and then the translator translated it for many minutes, or you know, maybe a few less, but translated the whole scene, whatever, to the Lama, and then the Lama said, whatever in Tibetan, I don't know what, something very brief in Tibetan. And the uh, translator said, meditation too tight. (laughs) Meditation too tight. (laughs) False creations in the mind. When we're really, we're looking for that spiritual experience. Yeah, we start to see weird shit. (laughs) And that might be great if if we don't want to take hallucinogens anymore. But (laughs) it's not really going to lead us to freedom. You can't make insight happen. 
we can just put the the conditions in place for it to arise and it will arise when the conditions are there these are the laws of the mind Sayadaw says that too when we know them we understand we can understand we can put the conditions start to put the conditions into place that's why we're harping here on, on continuity of mindfulness because we know through our experience that that's the condition for concentration collectedness of mind collectedness of mind this samadhi the nature the quality of samadhi is to see <coughs> things patterns in things to suddenly see the whole pattern or meaning is like, oh, this that's happening now, this voice that I'm hearing in my head of this, vo- the, the constant berating self, um, self-criticism voice, the, when, the time when I really heard it, it's like, oh, damn, that's my mom's voice. That's my mom talking to me in my head. Now, of course, I knew that through therapy, but it was something about seeing it with the concentrated mind that then wisdom kicked in to say, Oh, you don't need that. You don't need to believe in that. That's just your mom being weird. That's just your mom We're acting out of her conditioning and you don't need to believe in it. For gosh sakes, I just needed to hear that bit of detail with the concentrated mind that then saw the pattern, you know, the historical pattern. And I had a lot of accumulated wisdom about how it was not necessary to listen to my mom's criticism. So that kicked in. I don't know if that's a good example. All right, so we take uh, so we take refuge in our practice. We take refuge in in these these skills that we're developing, and we sort of learn to trust that they will pay off. And somebody, a journalist, once asked the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, asked him after observing him and being with him for some days or weeks, he said, "My gosh, you know, Dalai Lama, you, Your Holiness, you are." so incredibly compassionate and kind to everyone you meet. You know, your students, your colleagues, the people who work at the hotels, everyone. How do you do it? What do you have that you can access this compassion for everyone, this kindness? And the Dalai Lama said, I have nothing but my dogged practice. And that's really how I feel. Like, I can't take credit for any of these things, these insights that have freed me and changed me and helped to transform my life. When I started this practice, let me see, how did I put this in my writing? When I started this practice, I was constantly at war with myself, ravaged with anxiety, addicted to booze, messing up relationships, contemplating suicide, and I hated myself full on. And now... I don't have panic attacks anymore. (laughs) No. I mean, you know, (laughs) honestly, I am no longer at war with myself. One of the things I say when people ask me, you know, what have you gotten out of this meditation practice? And one of the things, short things that I might say is, you know, I have learned to trust myself. And I've learned to trust life. And I've learned to trust the Dharma. And that is like huge for me. So those of us, we all of us are transformed by this practice and it's through developing a skillful practice and these teachings that I'm sharing with you tonight have really helped me in that way. I wanted to invite for a minute anyone to to just briefly say 
how um, your Dharma practice has changed your life for the better. Anything briefly that you want to offer? Um, um, very judgmental and critical. Um, but <clears throat> one thing that I've noticed in the last maybe year and a half is um, when there are sticky situations between others or me and somebody else, I can more easily access what is going on for them or what might have caused them to react this way. Mm. Whereas before I would have gone into blame right away, mm. I have a little bit of... Um, perspective taking that didn't exist before. So, yeah. Getting getting a bigger perspective that has helped compassion to arise. I don't Beautiful. know if it's compassion yet. It sounds like <laughs> empathy to me. <laughs> understanding. <laughs> okay, yeah. Some, some understanding. Thank you. Anyone else? Well, I, I think that I attribute my practice to being a much happier person and much more just content with what is and kind of knowing, really knowing a lot of the time that, you know, that thing isn't going to make me happy. It's just... Discovering true happiness and contentment. I'm repeating for the recording. Thank you. (laughs) Anyone else? I'm a way better problem solver. Better problem solver. Because I let the... I let it come to me. Ah. As opposed to kind of jamming on it. Uh huh. The relaxed mind is creative mind. Yeah, beautiful. Um, I've I've been uh, much better at dealing with um, feelings of anger, and it's improved my relationships. Or it's it's allowed me to have relationships. Let's put it that way, and <clears throat> it's made me a much better father. Mm. Improved relationships and less anger. That's great. Yes. Um, I've noticed that I am now able, I spend less energy clinging to things and have more energy to do things throughout a day. So whereas one scenario would not have met my expectations and would derail me for an entire day, it's just kind of like a blip. Not always, but <laughs> more often than it used to be impossible for me to carry on through, you know, hardships. And now something comes up, okay, you know, one foot in front of the other, mm. and I have more, um, more availability to be, you know, helpful to other people and availability for myself. Oh, that's beautiful. So I'm going to say more um, uh, flexibility and responsivity of mind and more available to help others. Just simply to give me hope. Given, given hope. Aesthetic yeah. awareness uh, made me more at ease doing sketchy stuff at heights. More at ease climbing. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, like climbing heights? Stuff, like doing other stuff yeah. More at ease in fearful situations? Yeah, situations. Job, but, uh, well, I mean, maybe it's practice doing that, but still, aesthetic awareness is key to that. Thank you. More at ease in... Sketchy situations. Interesting. Yeah. Yes. Um, I started practicing because I wanted to be nicer to myself. And really soon, I started to want to be kinder to other people. And, um, and that happened. 
So I became a kinder person, but I also became extremely aware when I was unkind. <laughs> so I had to deal with that pain too. Um, I work with children, and so it, be, and, you know, it just uh, it enhanced my life a lot that way. Mm -hmm. and it also made me afraid of myself a little bit. Ah, more awareness of more kindness and more awareness of when you were being unkind. Yeah. The danger of unkindness. How about you, Dave? So many things. <laughs> I just mostly feel like everything's okay. Like, you know, I had this strong sense of things, not, it's not okay, this isn't okay, this, everything was not okay. And now I just feel like uh, a lot more loose about things. Equanimity? Yeah. Ease? <coughs> Yes, this shit works. This works. It really does. Thank you for sharing. We all have stories about how the Dharma has profoundly changed our lives. This is my, I'll leave you with this quote from Saida. When there is faith or confidence, so this is what gives us faith and confidence, is seeing the change. Notice, and we need to take notice, because sometimes the changes are really incredible, intense, like, wow, unhooking, you know, moments of deep insight. But mostly, it's like a gradual improvement in things and a gradual release, a gradual release into more ease. So we need to take notice and look back a few years to what's changed and that gives us confidence and trust in this practice. And, uh, uh, yeah, the path. When there is faith or confidence, effort will arise. When there is effort, mindfulness will become continuous. When mindfulness is continuous, stability of mind will become established. That's samadhi, concentration. When stability of mind is established, you will start understanding things as they are. When you start understanding things as they are, faith will grow stronger. And then this cycles back around to effort will arise. And so this keeps us moving forward in the path. We have nothing but our dogged practice, but it's enough. Yeah. Thank you all so much.